0: I'm going to say, just go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 1. We're not going to start there right yet, but just turn there and have that ready. We'll we'll get there eventually. But this week marks the end of our little sort of what I thought would just be sort of like a one-week respite when I was really busy and didn't have time to prepare a Sunday school lesson, and I've managed to squeeze out for five weeks, so I think you know, I, I would pat myself on the back being able to, <laughs> to, to squeeze that out for five weeks. But we'll be looking at the last of the um, points, the five points of Reformed salvation the, on, in the doctrine of Reformed salvation here that we've been looking at. The, the, the petals and tulip, if you will, the so-called five points of Calvinism. And again, just to bring and also if you have any questions, sort of save those for the end, because you know we'll we'll take some questions at the end. But again, just to recap, you know, we've been looking at this for the last few weeks, the doctrine of salvation, at least the reformed view of salvation, which came out of the Reformation. Uh, when we started this five weeks ago, we we looked at the, the debate between Roman Catholics and the Protestants, and then we started to look at how this debate that we're looking at here, the doctrine of salvation, comes out of an in house debate between the Protestants, between reforms. So you have the classic reform view, and then you have what, was, what has come out of that, the Arminian view, or the, the view of the Remonstrants, as they, um, through Jacob Arminius, his followers, they had some objections to some of the teachings in the Belgic Confession of Faith, which was the, the doctrine that, that uh, sort of governed the Dutch churches in those days, in the six, early 1600s. So they raised some issues. There was a council. The council rejected all of the issues that the Armenians raised, and then they produced a document called the Canons of Dort because it was the Synod of Dort that met to review these uh, articles of the remonstrance, and they produced this document, the Canons of Dort, in which they laid out in detail the Reformed doctrine of salvation. And if you're curious, uh, the Canons of Dort are on the back of the Trinity Hymnal. We have all of our confessional statements in the back of the Trinity Hymnal. We also have um, booklets in the front that you can pick up that have all of this in there as well. And we've been just kind of summarizing this debate over the the five points, and just to again to remind you what the Remonstrants, what the the, the, the Articles of the Remonstrants uh, argued, because again the debate boils down to the issue of who is working in salvation: is it God alone, or is it God with the help of man? That is that is the central. Um, issue in this debate here. And so there's the monergist view, which is God works alone, and then there's the synergist view, which is God works with us in our salvation. And the, the articles of the remonstrant focus, like we said, on five key elements of disputation. The Arminians believe that predestination or election unto salvation is conditional. It is conditional on a foreseen faith. They also believe that atonement is is universal in the sense that it is applied, or I should say, it is made available to all people. So Jesus dies not to save a select group of people, but He dies to make salvation available to all. They also believe point three that man cannot of himself exercise the saving faith, but needs God's prevenient grace. So he needs sort of like a kickstart to get going, and then man can go on on his own. They also believe that God's grace is necessary, but it does not act irresistibly. So you can resist God's grace that is, that is uh, put forth when He calls you uh, through the Gospel. And then the point we're going to look at right now, this morning, is that believers are able to fall away from grace and lose their salvation. So those are the, the five points. And then over the last few weeks, we looked at each one of those in detail, in some detail, not in exquisite detail, but we looked at him in some detail. We looked at, we started with total depravity because that's how the, the acronym goes, TULIP. So we looked at total depravity, we looked at unconditional election, we looked at limited atonement, and then last week we looked at irresistible grace and how uh, irresistible grace, God sovereignly and effectually applies salvation to the, to the elect. So for this morning now we're going to look at the final point which is p perseverance of the saints and again like with all the others except for I think unconditional election perseverance of the saints is not the best way to describe it okay because it kind of seems like you puts the onus on the saints to persevere and really what we have here is not so much perseverance of the saints but preservation of the saints—it is God through the work of the Holy Spirit that preserves us, and He preserves us so that we do persevere. So we persevere because God preserves us. That's so. It's probably better to call it preservation of the saints, but at least you get to keep the P. Okay, you don't have to change the letter P. But what does perseverance? Let's first look at what perseverance of the saints doesn't mean. Okay, perseverance of the saints doesn't mean that the saints, that is, the elect, that they persevere in their own strength, or that it's up to them to persevere. Okay, that's kind of what I was saying, but I'm putting it in more formal words here. So perseverance of the saints does not mean that the saints persevere in their own strength, that they sort of white-knuckle their way through their salvation, that they sort of You know, by their own strength of effort, by their own strength of will, they you know they stand firm in their own strength and they walk forward and they persevere through the onslaught of the world, the flesh, and the devil. All right, the saints are not doing this in their own strength. Right? In that great passage in Ephesians 6, when Paul starts talking about the believers' spiritual armor, in verse, I believe it's 10, he says, Stand firm in the Lord. Right, and in the power of his might. Right? You know, if perseverance was up to the saints, you would say, Stand firm in your own strength. (laughs) Stand firm for the Lord in your own strength. No, he says, Paul says, Stand firm in the Lord in the power of his might. It is through the power of the Lord that we persevere. So perseverance does not mean we persevere in our own strength or that it is up to us to persevere. Perseverance also doesn't mean that believers will, will not so struggle with sin so as to appear to the world as an unbeliever. so perseverance of the saints does not mean that we will not struggle with sin. perfect example of this is the story of David and Bathsheba All right David was described in the Bible as what? a man after god's own heart right so a guy who who, who Strove to please God, a guy who was, who was what God wanted. He was God's choice. When, when Israel wanted a king, they wanted to choose a king like the other nations, so they chose Saul. Saul was tall. Saul was, he looked like a king. You know, the, the Bible describes him as a head taller than everyone else. So he looked the part. Saul was a mighty man, yet Saul was a very, very bad king. He was the people's choice for the king. And when when Samuel was lamenting the fact that the people were turning away from God to to have a human king, God tells Samuel, don't worry. They're not rejecting you, Samuel. (laughs) They're rejecting me. So they they pick Saul, and Saul turns out to be a horrible king. And then finally, when Saul has disqualified himself from being king because he failed to obey God's commands through Samuel, Samuel, uh, God through Samuel says, the, king, the kingdom has been torn away from you. So then he says, I'm going to give it to a man who follows after me, a man after my own heart. And then he anoints David. So he sends Samuel to anoint David. So David is a man after God's own heart. David was a, a king who sought to serve God with all of his being. That great scene when he's out there fighting Goliath, you know, he's out there, he says, Who is this who defies the armies of the living God? You know, and he says, I'll go fight him in the name and the power of the Lord, right? So he goes out, so David is the man after God's own heart. Yet David sinned, right? And in the story with David and Bathsheba, he not only sinned, he sinned grievously, right? He he lusted after another man's wife. It's debatable whether or not he raped Bathsheba, but he took her to him, and she became his. And the product of that union was a child born out of wedlock. Now, this is not the first time David has—he's had multiple wives already. But he, you know, he in his lust, he, and in his boredom, and except, because it starts off, Second uh, Samuel's chapter eleven starts off in the days when the kings go out to battle. David was home. <laughs> He should have been out leading the Lord's armies in battle, yet he was at home and doing nothing and then he gives in to his own lust there. Now if you were to look at that, if you were to just look at that section of David's life, if the only time you knew David as king was the time when he took Bathsheba to be his own and and then plotted to kill her husband Uriah uh, the Hittite, you would look at David, would, would David appear to be a man after God's own heart? No, not at all. David was acting like an unbeliever. David was acting like a very wicked, probably worse than Saul ever acted as king in that one instance. So you could look at the life of a believer. You could take any segment of their life, and there could probably be a period of time in which that person is far from God. Right? In fact, that entire episode of 2 Samuel chapter 11, you don't see the word God mentioned until the very end when it says at the end that the thing that David did displeased the Lord. That's the only time you see God in the entire chapter in which David commits that sin with Bathsheba. So perseverance of the saints doesn't mean that believers will not struggle with sin so as to appear to the world as an unbeliever. So that's what it doesn't mean. What does perseverance of the saints then mean? It means that God's electing love Christ's atoning work and the Holy Spirit dwelling within believers will ensure that those who have truly been saved are never finally lost. Okay, I'll repeat that in case you wanted to write this down. Perseverance of the saints means that God's electing love, Christ's atoning work, the Spirit dwelling within believers will ensure that those who have been truly saved are never finally lost. So in the end, as I said at the beginning, the saints persevere because the triune God preserves them firm until the end. So we persevere because God preserves us. And think about that, right? So as we've been going along through the petals of tulip, okay, we realize that everything that follows the T logically flows because we are totally depraved, because we are radically corrupt, because we are completely incapable of doing any of this work on our own. So we need God to elect us. We need Christ to die for us and atone for us. We need the Spirit to irresistibly draw us to Him. And then we need all three of the people, all three of the persons of the Trinity, to preserve us. And if God is doing all these things, if God elects you, if Christ dies for you, and if the Spirit dwells within you, how can you be lost, fully or finally lost? I would say you can't, because God is holding on to you, okay? Classic verse for this is Philippians 1.6. You all know this verse, but here we see Paul says at the very beginning of this letter, Being confident of this very thing, that he that is God who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. So the infinite, eternal, unchangeable, holy, perfect God, if he begins a work in you, what is going to stop him from completing that work? nothing what what can stop god from doing his work no one nothing if god starts a work in you he is going to finish that work it would be very ungodlike for god to start a work in you and then fail to finish it what kind of god is that who starts a work in you that's what we do right i have many unfinished projects <laughs> Things that I said, I think this is a great idea. I'm going to start reading this book. And then three weeks later, the book is back on my shelf collecting dust because for whatever reason, I got distracted. I'm no longer reading the book. Or I think I'm going to start a new hobby. I'm going to start woodworking. And then I realize what the cost of the tools are and everything and the effort and time it's going to take to get into that hobby. It's like, nah, it's not worth it. I start a lot of things. And I don't finish all of those things that I start. Okay? And I'm sure that's the, that's everyone can kind of somehow relate to that. You start a work, you don't finish it. God never starts a work that He doesn't finish. Okay? God never starts a work that He does not finish. So God starts this work and He will see it to completion. He will preserve us until the day of Jesus Christ. Another verse in Philippians. I know I told you to go to Ephesians, but... You know, you could stay there, but Ephesians 2, verses 12 and 13. Right after that section where Paul talks about the humiliation and exaltation of Christ, he then comes in verse 12 with a therefore. So the therefore points us back to the that great uh, what they call the, the Carmen Christi, the song of Christ, uh, where you know Christ gave up. The, the glories of being at the right hand of God the Father to come into this world, to humble himself, to take on the form of a servant, to come in the form of a man, and to be obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then God exalts him. He's raised, he ascends into heaven, and he's glorified. And then he says, At the knee of Christ, at the name of Christ, I should say, every knee should bow, every tongue will confess to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, verse 12, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, if we stop there, it would make it sound like it's up to us to persevere. Work it out. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Thankfully, verse 13 is there. For it is God who works in you. Both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So, this command of Paul's here in verses 12 and 13 is a command to work out what God is working in you. God is working a good work in you, now work that out. So, there's a bit of a responsibility on our part to obey, to be obedient, to follow the commands of the Lord, to to show our thankfulness, our gratitude to God and everything He's done for us in Christ through obedience. But we do that because God is already working in us. He's working in us through His Spirit to work out our own salvation. So then, we have here these, these verses that talk about perseverance, but it is perseverance that is born out of a preserving work that the Spirit does in us. Okay, now we can go to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1. So earlier I mentioned that the triune God preserves the saints firm unto the end. It is the electing love of God, it is the atoning work of Christ, and is the dwelling of the Holy Spirit in us that preserves us, that ensures that those who have been saved will remain and never remain faithful, never fully or finally fall away. And I believe we see that here in Ephesians one verses three through fourteen, where we read here, "Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us." both which are in heaven and which are on earth, in Him. In Him, that is again in Christ, also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, that we who trust first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of His glory. In Christ, or in Him, you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom you have... In whom also, having believed, you are sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Now, in the Greek, that's one big, long, run-on sentence. Okay, Paul was so excited about what he was writing, he couldn't stop, he didn't put any commas or periods, he just kept writing, 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 writing. Then he got to the end of verse 14, and he put a period. It's like, okay, take a breath, and now continue writing. All right, he was so excited about this. Now, here in that passage, there's a lot of words there and a lot of phrases in him, in Christ, which talks about our union with Christ. But in this passage, you see the work of the triune God in bringing us from the foundation of the world, before the foundation of the world, being elected all the way to being sealed by the holy spirit in those uh, what 11 or 12 verses you got there right so what we were chosen in him verse 4 before the foundation of the world so that's god's electing love chosen before the foundation of the world then you drop down to verse 7 in christ we have redemption through his blood that is the atoning work of christ to die in our behalf Atones for us, redeems us, buys us back, buys us out of slavery to sin, buys us out of our deadness to sin. We are redeemed through His blood and received forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. And then finally, at the end here, we see that we are sealed. Okay, that is the where, if I'm not mistaken, I didn't check this, but I believe it is the word uh, that resembles or, or talks about like a signet ring. How you you put a seal on a document, so you put a little drop of wax in there. If you've got a signet ring, you, you know, you know, pop it on there, and you put the signet, the seal, on there. It's been sealed; it has been guaranteed. We are sealed by the Holy Holy Spirit of Promise, who is the guarantee. Now, if you have a New King James Version, you might have a footnote there on the word guarantee that says down payment or earnest. All right. In the Greek, the word is "autobon," which means a down payment. So think about when you go to purchase a house. Okay, very few people actually go and drop a big wad of cash. You know, if the if the house is like two hundred thousand dollars, you know, you don't pull out the big wad of cash and start peeling off hundred dollar bills until you get to two hundred thousand dollars. Usually, you write a check for a portion of the amount, and you say, "I'm putting down a down payment," which indicates. I am making an agreement that I will buy this house. I am making a promise. I'm giving you earnest money that I'm going to buy this house. And then the person says, "Great, okay. We'll write up the deal, and you will promise then to pay the full amount." The Holy Spirit is that down payment. He is that down payment of glorification. He's that down payment of salvation that is given to us. We are sealed with Him and guaranteed with Him. We are sealed in the the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwells in us. Alright, so now again I ask you, if someone who has been elected by God before the foundation of the world, has been redeemed by the blood of Christ on the cross, has been sealed by the Holy Spirit who is now our down payment, can that person fall away from Christ? I would say no. (laughs) No. You've got all three persons of the Trinity working in your life to make sure that you are from eternity past, saved, and brought through all the way to the end. Again, that you know, Philippians 1:6. He who began a good work in you will see it to completion. So again, redeemed or chosen by the Father, redeemed by the precious blood of Christ, sealed by the Holy Spirit, who is a down payment of the inheritance. So someone who is the Triune God working on our behalf can never and f- truly or finally fall away. Is the that he right, right, yeah. So going to the parable of the sheep. In fact, we're going to turn to John ten, but it's not with the parable of sheep. But uh, in the parable of the sheep. Jesus has a hundred sheep. One of them is lost. He leaves the ninety-nine to go find the one that's lost. That's exactly right, you know. And and, and any one of us who strays, who goes off the path, who's who is off the reservation for a time, God will hunt you down. Okay, you know, L- Luther talked about how he was being chased by the hounds of heaven. <laughs> And, and, and it's like God will hunt you down. You will not get away from, from God's grasp. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. All right, flip over to John chapter 10. We've been here several times. This is um, looking at this more. Uh, we looked at this for uh, limited atonement, but also um, perseverance of the saints applies here as well. Because in verse, I'm not going to read the whole passage. But in verse 14 of chapter 10, Jesus, being the good shepherd, says, in fact, I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep. I know who are mine, and am known by my own. So I know my sheep, my sheep know me. Okay, again, so Jesus is the good shepherd. The sheep are His. In a sense, you could say the sheep were given to Him by the Father, and Jesus, being the Good Shepherd, will not lose any of them. So they hear His voice. Flip down to verse 27. My sheep hear My voice. Right. So other sheep that are not His do not hear His voice, but His sheep hear His voice. And I know them, and they follow Me. Verse 28, and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of My hand. And then My Father, verse 29, who has given them to Me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of My Father's hand. Alright, so, again, I ask the question, Jesus has His sheep. If Jesus is holding on to the sheep, who can snatch the sheep out of His hand? Right, yeah, the Arminian view says that the sheep can leave. And the good shepherd, if the sheep leaves, will hunt them down. <laughs> he's the good shepherd. The Arminian view basically says Jesus is not a good shepherd, he's an okay shepherd. It's like, well, I, you gave me 100 sheep, I came back with 98. That's pretty good, right, 98%? Yeah, no, not, not in God's economy, no. No one can snatch them out of Jesus' hand. No one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. So again, if if the Father is holding on to us, if Jesus is holding on to us, who is going to snatch us away? I think the answer is pretty clear. No one can snatch them away. The shepherd gives them eternal life and they will never perish. Okay, another classic passage. Flip over to Romans 8. We looked at this when we looked at um, Romans 8. (laughs) We'll, We'll look at verses 31 through 39. So here we see, and if you've got a heading, you might see God's everlasting love there. You might see something else. I'll read verses 31-39. through Paul writes, as he's concluding this chapter here, What then shall we say to these things? Now these things refers not just to what he's been saying in Romans 8, but pretty much throughout all of Romans. Because he's kind of concluding his doctrinal section here in, in this passage here. So what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son... But delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, as a Christian, if you believe the Word of God is the Word of God, that it is authoritative, that it is inspired and errant and fallible, and you read that, can you could you then believe that you could fall away from God? No, I I can't. If God is for us, who can be against us? Okay, if the creator of the entire universe is on your side, what could possibly be on the other side that you have to worry about? Nothing. Zero things. If God is for you, who can be against us? He did not spare His own Son. He gave His own Son for you. The eternally begotten Son. The One who is in the bosom of the Father from all time. He gave Him for us. How will did He not give us all other things? In other words, I gave you the most precious gift I can ever give you, My Son. If I'm going to give you that, am I going to withhold anything else from you? No. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Who's going to come before the court of God and bring a charge against the elect? No one, because Christ is our advocate. He stands there and he says, I died for this one. I died for him. I died for her. No one can bring a charge against God's elect. Kind of reminds me when we were looking at Revelation 12 and Satan being cast out. He is called in Revelation 12 the accuser of the brethren because you see him up until that point in time. He kind of roams around and comes before heaven. You see this in the book of Job. And he, and he accuses before God. He, when God says, have you considered My servant Job? Satan says, does Job worship you for nothing? He says, take away your protection. Then we'll see. He'll curse you to your face. And God says, have at it, just don't harm him. And then, you know, and then he go, comes back after Job does not curse him to his face. He says, well, you protected him, let me, let me, let, let me at him. And then God says, okay, you, you can touch him, but you can't kill him. And the same thing happens, and Job does not curse God. His wife says, why don't you curse God and die? And Job says, no, I'm not going to curse God. And then, so, I mean, and he has been cast out now. He is no longer there to accuse the brethren. So, no one can bring a charge against God's elect because it is God who justifies. God has ruled in his court that in Christ you are justified, he has declared you righteous. There is nothing then that can come against you and bring a charge. He goes on, "...who shall separate us from the love of Christ?" And then he lists a whole bunch of things. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. No, none of those things. And then he says, "...yet in all these things..." Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. "...in all these things, we are more than conquerors." Okay? The word there is huperniko. Okay? Nike is the Greek word for Victory. And you have the, you know, you got the word hoop on it. So we're over victors. We are over conquerors. We are more than conquerors. We're super conquerors. Think about how the letters to Revelation end at the end. It says, To the one who overcomes, to the one who is a, an overcomer, to the one who is a conqueror, you will be given this, you'll be given that. We are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. And then he goes on and says, I am persuaded, Paul says in verse 38, neither death nor life, angels nor principalities, powers nor things present nor things to come, height, depth, or, and then this is just sort of like a catch-all phrase, any other created thing. See, I mean, Paul could go on forever and ever. He can have a much longer run-on sentence naming all the things that cannot separate us from the love of God. So he just says, or any other created thing. Shall be able to separate us from the love of Christ, God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So how many things can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord? Zero things. Zero things can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So again, if God is for us, who can be against us? no one who can bring a charge against God's elect, no one. what can separate us from the love of God? Nothing. Perseverance of the saints. We persevere because God preserves us. God holds on to us with his hand. Jesus holds on to us with his hand. We have been redeemed by his blood. We have been chosen by God. We are preserved and sealed by the Holy Spirit. Well, what about objections? So let's look at, flip over to Hebrews 6. Because Hebrews 6 is pointed at as a passage that, I'm going to put this in scare quotes, clearly teaches that believers can lose their salvation. Now the, the passage is verses 4 through 6, but I'm going to read verses 1 through 8 because we need context. So Paul, not Paul, whoops. I don't know if Paul wrote this. <laughs> He might have. A lot of people believe he did. um, But we don't know for certain. Um, Actually, I'm going to back up to chapter 5, verse 12. Because he's talking about, the author here is talking about how his readers should be further along than where they're at. So verse 12, he says, For by this time you ought to be teachers... To the high priest Melchizedek in earlier in chapter 5. Okay, and that that's it's it's heady stuff, it's meaty stuff. And then he said, and then he pauses, he says, now I'd like to tell you about more about this, but you don't know enough yet. <laughs> you're you're a little too immature. I need to I need to toughen you up. So he says, for although by this time you need to ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again. So that's just a little running context. Now, verse 1 of chapter 6. Therefore leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection. So here he is exhorting them to, to go beyond the basics of the faith, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptism, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Now here is the passage that the Arminians will look at. Now I'm going to read on verses seven and eight. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated, receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. Now they will they will point to that verse five. Those who have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, it is impossible for them to renew them again to repentance since they crucified them. So they say here, see, you can lose your salvation because it is impossible for them to regain it if they give it up. So what do we say to that? Well, we say first, context is king. What is the precise nature of the apostasy that the writer of Hebrews is warning his readers? Okay, it is believed that because it is called the book of Hebrews that he is writing to Jewish Christians. He is writing to Jewish Christians who are undergoing persecution for being Christian. And their temptation is to go back to their old way of religion. Go back to old covenant way of worshiping. Go back to the sacrifices. Go back to the animal sacrifices. Go back to the Sabbaths and all these other things. And, and the writer here is saying you can't go back. Right. The whole argument in Hebrews is that Jesus Christ is superior. He is superior to angels. He is superior to Moses. He is superior to the Levitical priesthood. His covenant is superior to the Old Covenant. Not that the Old Covenant was bad, it's just, it's the Old Covenant. It's not as good as the New Covenant. It is, so the New Covenant is superior. You're saying, look, if you go back, if you leave Christ and go back to the old way of doing things, there is no hope for you because you are, in a sense, kicking the gangplank that takes you from the dock to the boat. Right? You're leaving the boat Going back to the gang to the, to, the, to the dock and you're kicking the gangplank out by going and leaving Christ so you know, many there are many passages here that says don't go back, don't go back and he often, he often ref, uh, refers to the exodus community because what happened when Moses led the people out of Egypt and on the way to the promised land? what did they do? They complained right It's like we're hungry, Moses. Why did you take us out of Egypt where we had the meat pots and the lentils and the onions and the lox and the bagels and all whatever we had? Oh, for the good old days of being back in Egypt. Or when they were thirsty. Why did you bring us out here to die of thirst, Moses? We could go back to Egypt where we had plenty to drink. It's like, yeah, but you were slaves back then. Why do you want to go back to being a slave? Right? And the idea is that the Old Covenant was good and useful and effective until Christ came. When Christ came, he made all of that obsolete. Because now the substance is here. They were types and shadows that pointed to Christ. Now that the substance is here, you don't need the types and shadows. It'd be like if you knew how to ride a bicycle, you're not going to put training wheels back on your bicycle. The training wheels were there to help you so that you could get your balance. Once you get your balance, you take the training wheels off. To go back to training wheels is to, go, is to go backwards, redemptive historically speaking. That is what this passage is talking about in Hebrews 6. It says, if you give up Christ to go back to the old ways of doing things, you are, in a sense, trampling under the work of Christ. You are re-crucifying Him and there's no hope for you. And it goes to show that just with the parable of the soils in Matthew 13, when, uh, or sorry, the weeds in the, the wheat... When the wheat grows, there are also going to be weeds there. There are always going to be, in the covenant community of God's people, false converts. People who are in the church but not of the church. People who proclaim Christ but are not in Christ. There are always false believers in the true believers. And as those who will turn away. So that is the idea of Hebrews 6. One other suggestion. or One other objection, I should say, is Sometimes people will sort of call perseverance of the saints. They'll say, isn't that just once saved, all is saved? And doesn't that remove any motivation for holy living? To which, read Romans 6. <laughs> I mean, that's all I would say. is Read Romans 6. Because Paul will say there, you know, it's like, shall I sin so that grace will abound? And Paul says, no. How can you who have died to sin continue to live in it? You know, So once saved, always saved is not sort of an excuse to live any way we want. Oh, I made my profession of faith. I'm golden. I can live any way I want. That's not how it works. Because one who, one who has been raised with Christ cannot consistently sin and walk in sin. That's what he says in Romans 6. You who have, who have died to sin, have been raised with Christ, cannot walk in sin anymore. It is inconsistent with your profession of faith, so that is perseverance of the saints. We've got a few minutes left. I, I was hoping maybe to save you some more time for questions, but um, I will entertain some questions here if there are any. Next week we go to back to First Corinthians, back to First Corinthians four. We'll be starting four next week. Yeah, verses one through five.